When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robbie Gallaty is the senior pastor of Long Hollow Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. He was radically saved out of a life of drug addiction in 2002. And in 2008, he began Replicate Ministries to equip and train men and women to be disciples who make disciples. Robbie, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, you're in the Nashville area. You've got this thriving church that you're pastoring. You're passionate about discipleship, but... uh, that wasn't always the case. Can you share with us your story of faith? Uh, I haven't always been a pastor, obviously. I was raised in South Louisiana, right outside of New Orleans, and uh, came up in a Catholic home, very religious Catholics, half Italian, so we went to church every Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday. <laughs> and even back then, Kirk, I knew who God was, but I didn't have a personal relationship with him. I knew God as this authoritative, dictative leader, or kind of a a leader that was out to get me every time I would do wrong. And I went to church like this. I would go in on Sunday, expect the peace of God to come over me, and then I would go live like I wanted Monday through Saturday, go back to church, and do it all over again. And what I realized was that doesn't just happen in a Catholic church. That happens in the Baptist, Presbyterian church as well. But I went to uh, college. Uh, I was supposed to go to college at UNC Greensboro to play basketball. I had a scholarship to go play there. But I was dating a girl in high school. And you know, when you're in high school, you think this is the one. And so she's going to LSU in Baton Rouge. And she said, how are you going to go that far away to play basketball? And so I literally opened the phone book up. I mean, this is true. We opened the phone book and found this school called William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Have you heard of the school before? Uh, I've heard of William Carey, um, but I'm not as familiar with the school. Yeah, neither had I. I'd never heard of this school either. I I went to this college. I I called the coach. I said, can I try out for the basketball team? And he said, you're crazy. The school starts in two weeks. Uh, We already have the team picked. And I said, coach, just let me try out for the team. And hesitantly, he did. And uh, my mom told me, she said, son, told me this years later, she said, son, you've never played basketball that good before that day. And frankly, you've never played that good since that day. But on that day, it was like the greatest tryout I'd ever had in basketball. And the coach called me two days later and he said, I'll give you a full ride to play basketball at William Carey. When I got to the campus, the girl I was dating thought I was cheating on her. And within two weeks, she broke up with me. So here I am on the campus of which I find out afterward, a Roman Catholic on a Southern Baptist campus. And if you know what that means, I am the target of every evangelism class on campus, right? Who do we tell about (laughs) Jesus? Ravi needs Jesus. Kirk, I would cruise through the campus in my Ford Mustang, blaring the unedited version of Tupac Shakur from two 10-inch bazookas in the trunk. And I'm telling you, I was as lost as lost could be. For the first year, they tried to convert me, and it was the second year, this is kind of a novel idea for some, but the second year, I befriended a guy named Jeremy Brown, and he did something different. 
he actually became my friend, right? I mean, he just he just befriended me, and we had the same likes. We both liked basketball. We both oh. liked playing guitar. And he earned the right over the course of that year to share the gospel with me. And he shared the gospel, and he's like, man, if, if you died today, would you go to hell? And I said, yeah. And he said, how does that make you feel? And I said, not good. And so he said, pray with me this prayer. And I'm telling you, I prayed that prayer back then, and for about two weeks, I actually thought I was a believer. I, I really did. But over time, and people ask me, how do you know you weren't a believer back then? Here's how. Over time, my life reverted back to the way it was before. And Jesus is clear about this in the Bible. He says, you could tell a tree by the fruit it bears. We know this. And so I came up with this line. The root of one's heart is revealed by the fruit of one's life. And so if you want to know if a person is a genuine believer, just look at their life. And my life really said otherwise. I got out of college in uh, 1998. I started uh, to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I wanted to be a professional uh, MMA fighter. Now, Kirk, this is back in 98 when nobody made money. I was 6'6", 290 pounds. I'm at a, a bar restaurant one night, and a guy named Gino comes up to me, and he's like, hey, would you be interested in being the head bouncer of my club downtown New Orleans in the middle of Mardi Gras? I said, let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to fight? I'm in, right? I mean, this is the job of a right. lifetime for me. So I'm bouncing, I'm bouncing for like three months down there in the bar. It was the wildest three months of my life. I realized I needed a career change when I was escorting two guys to the parking lot, saying things obviously I can't repeat here. And as I walked into the car, one guy leans over, pulls out from under his seat a loaded 9mm gun, puts it toward my face, and he says, now tell me what the, to do. And I'm like, okay, I need a career change. I talked to the boss. He said, all right, we'll move you. It'll be a lateral move from bouncing to bartending, right? Seemed like the best move at the time. I was bartending for a season, and then this is when my entire life changed. November 22nd, 1999. I'm driving home from work. I'm going up the high rise of New Orleans. An 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, slams my car into the guardrail. I herniate two discs in my back, two discs in my neck, and I went to the doctor. I'm 22 years old, and I was an athlete, so I never huh. took drugs before, never got high. And I went to the doctor in pain, legitimately, and this is how a lot of people get on drugs and alcohol or addiction. I went to the doctor and they sent me home with four things, Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And you know the story, right? I mean, within two months, three months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I can't work, I can't train anymore, I just wanna get high. And so I was in a network marketing oh. business in college at 19 and 20, so I needed to find a way to fulfill this insatiable desire to get high. And so I took the business acumen from the world and I brought that into the drug world and I started an illegal import business. I started trafficking drugs from Mexico to Miami. I moved from pharmaceutical drugs to heroin and cocaine, Special K, which obviously is not a cereal, GHB, marijuana, and I'm not telling you any of this to impress you. I just want to impress upon you just how far the Lord brought me from back then. Uh. Times were really good. I mean, if you would have looked at me by the world standards, you would have said, man, you really have it all. I had a $50,000 Cadillac, brand new CTS, black on black, 20-inch Katana chrome rims. I had a $9,000 stereo system in the trunk. And by the world standards, I really thought I had everything. 
But when I would go to bed at night as an unbeliever, I knew there had to be something more than this. I really knew that in my heart. And so long story, I robbed my own parents for $15,000. I had a $200 a day heroin and cocaine addiction, two rehab treatments. I come back from rehab and I'm in my room. I'm not in a revival service. I don't have a dad that's a pastor, never really been to a Protestant church at the time, but I was desperate. And I decided in my mind to try Jesus. And I thought, what else do I have to lose? I'd lost eight friends to death of alcohol and drug-related incidents. Six went to jail, and I thought, I might as well try Jesus. And here's what I did. I took the little bit of faith I had, and I put it in as much of Jesus as I knew. And I had this radical 24-hour Paul-like conversion where my whole life was changed. And the day I was saved, really radically saved, was the day God called me into ministry. And it doesn't always happen that way, but it happened for me. And so since that time, I've had the privilege of just kind of growing in the faith. And so I was excited. My nickname was Ignorance on Fire early on. And uh, I didn't know why I believe what I believe, but I was learning. I met a man at church one Sunday, and this is where the whole discipleship thing comes into play. He looked about 15 years old, Kirk. His name was David Platt. And some know David as an author, the author of a book called Radical. He does this uh, nighttime gathering called Secret Church. Yeah. But back then, he was just a church member. He was a seminary student. And David came up to me one Sunday, and he said, Robbie, would you be interested in gathering once a week to study the Bible, memorize Scripture, and pray? I said, David, I would love to. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And Kirk, for the next two years, every Tuesday and Thursday, David and I met. We started over chicken at the General So's Chinese restaurant. We ate pizza together. And then David encouraged me to go to seminary. David encouraged me to be a pastor. And so I'd say all that to say, I'm the product of discipleship. That's why I'm so passionate about discipleship, because I asked myself the question, how different would my life be today if David and others hadn't mentored me back then? Wow. What a, what, what a story. And I love that we're talking about discipleship because discipleship really means something specific. It's different than going from being an atheist to being a believer in God. It's different than just hanging out with your pals over chicken. How do you take somebody who's maybe a drug addict, a guy who is got some other thing going on the side and he's really successful at that, how do you get him to hunger and thirst after righteousness? One of the things about discipleship is that it's sometimes more caught than taught, right? Like, yes, we can teach people what we know, but one of the things I try to do is not only teach people what to think, but it's important to teach people how to think. And I think we can look at today's culture. I mean, all the things that's happening today in the Supreme Court and the decisions, what we're seeing is a country divided. We're seeing a generation of young people who are now young adults who were brought up in this evangelistic, say a prayer, repeat after me culture, and they were never taught why they believe what they believe. And so that's why I think discipleship is not an option. It is essential for the church today. Robbie, this is so important. I want to take more time to talk about this after the break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the pillars of discipleship. So everybody stay right there. We're back with Pastor Robbie Gallaty. Uh, Robbie, what's the difference between real discipleship 
and fellowship. I mean, does it count if we're in Chick-fil-A, Carrie Underwood's singing in the background, and somebody's got a Bible verse on their T-shirt? Is that, is that, is, is that cut the mustard? <laughs> yeah, well, for, it depends on who you ask, right? I guess for some, they would say that is discipleship. Here's what I would say. When I was trying to decide what the difference between discipleship and non-discipleship was, I learned this in one of my groups. I got to the end of a, about a year-long journey with a group of five men. And for me, let me just define it. We do something called D groups. So these are groups of three to five men with men, women with women, gender exclusive. They meet for 12 to 18 months for the purpose of replication. And one of the things uh, at the end of that time, this guy asked me, he said, you're asking me to do the same thing with other people, but how do I know if I'm hitting the mark, is what he asked. He was a contractor and he was big on building homes and, and plans and blueprints. And he got me thinking, what is the mark of a healthy disciple? And so I created this acronym, which I call the marks of a disciple. And so if you're a pastor or a ministry leader or, or just a disciple of Christ, you can use this in your group or your church to decide if you're hitting the mark. And so every letter has a meaning. So M is missional. Am I creating a, a group of men and women who are living missionally? And I'm not talking about going on a mission trip, although that's important. I'm talking about, do you go to the same place at the same time to see the same people for the purpose of friendship, but also as a platform for the gospel? The A is accountable. So this, these are things that have to happen in the group, accountable. And accountability, I think, is the missing link. And a lot of people think of accountability like, man, I don't wanna be accountable to anyone. Accountability simply is this. It's me holding you responsible for doing what you say you're going to do. So, for example, if you say, hey, I want to be a better father. I want to disciple my kids. I want to read the Bible consistently. Then I will hold you accountable to do that. The third thing is the R, M-A-R. The R is reproducible. I said it earlier. The discipleship process is not complete till the mentee becomes a mentor. The C is actually communal. I would love to say M-A-R-K, which I could. We could go Greek with koinonia, but that's kind of confusing. So the C is communal or fellowship, like you asked earlier. The communal aspect is that intimacy, that transparency, that vulnerability, that by the way, particularly men are dying for today. It's said that most men don't even have a close friend in life or the church. Most pastors, I think it's some statistics like 65% of pastors would say they don't have a close friend they can trust and confide in. The S finally is scriptural. And it's crazy we have to say this, but it has to be based on the Bible. The Bible is the only thing that God promised to change and transform our heart. We want to meditate on it day and night. And so here's what we do, Kirk. We read the Bible consistently. We journal through the Bible daily, and we memorize the Bible weekly. And so we have this rhythm, this rule of life, if you will, and that's a helpful way to determine if you're making disciples. And what's the result that you've seen of living this out in small groups like you're talking about? Yeah, so I'm a pastor, obviously. Uh, the first church I went to uh, was 65 people, South Louisiana. They asked me coming in, like most search committees do, they say, what's your plan? What's, what's your goals for the church? And I said, I'm going to do two things when I'm here. And I was only a believer for like five years. So I didn't have, you know, pastor that was a dad. and So I didn't have a lot of church experience. But I knew two things. I said, I'm going to preach the word faithfully. 
and I'm going to be intentional to disciple men. Well, by God's grace, we started with a handful of men, and over time, it just exploded in that church. And then the next church I went to, I did the same thing. Year one, we started with 12 people. Year two, I decided to disciple my staff. And so I did those 12 started to reproduce for a couple groups, and then I discipled my staff, went to 32. By year three, those 32 started to disciple, went to 65. Year four, we saw another growth, 127. Year five, it hit around 250. And this is when the exponential growth happened. That year, I wrote a book called Growing Up. I actually wrote the book, Kirk, for myself as a new Christian of how to grow in the faith, how to read the Bible, how to memorize scripture. And so when I wrote the book, we basically challenged our church, grab three to five people, read for 12 weeks the book, not 12 months, start with 12 weeks, read the book and discuss it internally. The groups grew from 250 to 787 in one year. We had 787 people in these groups. Next year grew to about 1,200. And then the next year I left and came to the church I'm at now. And I don't say that to impress you with numbers. I want to show you the principle and the power of exponential growth. I mean, Jesus himself, one of the craziest things about Jesus's ministry, if you think about it, is that he never preached to large, large auditoriums. In fact, if you know the geography of Israel, Nazareth is close to a city called Caesarea by the sea. When I take tours to Israel, we go to Caesarea. And Kirk, there's a 4,000-seat amphitheater in Caesarea by the sea. Now, if Jesus was an American evangelist, Jesus would have packed that place out every day of the week, right? The disciples would have taken flyers and put them on every chariot in town and horse carriage. Come see the greatest man on earth. He raises the dead. He gives sight to the blind. He causes the deaf to hear. Come see Jesus in the flesh. Here's the problem. As we read through the Bible, not only did Jesus not even visit that Greek city, he never preached there. And the point is simple. Jesus knew the power of investing in a few. He took 12 men, three on the side, James, John, and Peter, and he changed the world in the course of history with a few. And so don't look at discipleship. I know some are thinking, man, I can't do this. It's overwhelming. It's bigger than me. Yes, but don't ever discount the power of the Word of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God, which you said earlier. So, Robbie, what if someone's listening to you right now going, man, I want that. I've never had that. I want to get into a group like that. Uh, In fact, I just had a guy talk to me the other day. I was um, spending a couple of weeks with some families that are going through some struggles. And and they were like, you know, I want to be a part of a group of men, but I'm just not quite sure who that group is or where to find them. My church doesn't really have that kind of thing going on. And I connected him with another friend who's got this group going on called Red Truck Men. And they meet for breakfast regularly and they study the word of God and they talk about how to apply it. But what if someone's going, I don't even, I don't know someone like that. My church isn't doing that or I tried it and it just, you know, they sit around and talk about, uh, I don't know, beer and politics. We never really get into the word. Maybe I should just start something myself. Can anyone just start a group like this? Uh, Or are there certain qualifications before you dive in? It's very hard to take someone on a journey you've never been on. So I know there's a lot of fear with leading a group if you've never been in a group. But I would say it's not impossible. The first thing I would say is this. If you're feeling, man, I need to be a part of this. I have a passion to do this. I would first pray. Before Jesus ever chose the disciples, it's interesting. 
that the eternal Son of God spent the night in prayer before he selected the men whom he'd invest his life in. So I, I know it's kind of cliche, pray, but pray. And you'll be amazed at how many people God would put in your life. And then the second thing is, I would just go ask. Go to a few men in your church that are a little older, maybe in age or maturity, and say, hey, I'm interested in someone pouring their life in mine. Would you yeah. do that? But if you feel like, I want to lead this, I, I really do. That's the reason, Kirk, years ago, we created a ministry called Replicate, which is basically tools and training to come alongside everyday believers to give them a framework or a paradigm. It's all free. You can go online, and we show you how to lead a group, how to do a hear journal and hear from God, how to memorize scripture, how to reproduce the groups and other things associated with that. Robbie, how do you know when it's time to leave a discipleship group? Maybe you've been in one for a while and you're thinking, man, I'm just, not, I'm just not feeling it here anymore. Do I need to stick it out? Do I need to confront some people here? Or do I need to just get out the back jack and find another one? What we normally find is the opposite, where you develop these rich relationships that you've never had with men or women, and you never want to leave the group, right? And I imagine the disciples were just like that, right? When Jesus left on, on Acts chapter 1, they're probably still looking in the sky, and the angel's like, no, no, y'all need to go. This thing is on you. And so I would say, you never want to leave a group that you've been a part of for a long time. But remember, the goal is reproduction. The very nature of the word make disciples is an action term. So you need to reproduce the group. The alternative is if you're in a group and you don't feel like you're growing or connecting, I don't think it's bad to leave a group and find someone you want to do life with. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're doing life with people. And here's a key thing. You're holding people accountable to obedience. The kingdom of heaven for Jesus was a present reality today. That's right. And if we have this preoccupation with getting out of earth to heaven, we miss, watch this, Jesus from heaven coming to earth through us in and through us today. And so discipleship is basically us living out the kingdom today. Don't feel like you have to learn all these things. You, man, if I just knew more, or I just had more insight, I could be a better Christian. One of the greatest quotes, and I'll close with this, this is a great quote I heard uh, by Dave Browning. He said, the problem in the American church is not the gap between what we know and what we don't know. The problem is the gap between what we know and what we're doing. And here's what he closes with. He says, we have become educated beyond our obedience. Uh. See, Kirk, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't know I have a problem with. It's those things I do know, right? Don't lust, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. If we could just hold people accountable to the simplistic nature of the gospel, I think we would change the world. Speak to the person who is leading a discipleship group, but he's got people within the group at different stages of maturity. How do you teach to, diff to you know, the kindergartners and the middle schoolers and the graduate students? You know, that's one of the blessings of a discipleship group. I've had groups with older men and younger men or mature men and new believers. And I would say one of the greatest gifts to any group is to have someone who just is a new convert to Christ. Why? Because that person reminds all of us that they never got over being saved. And they know what it's like to be lost. And they are just blown away that God would save them. And I think you would agree. 
the duration of time between the moment we surrender to Christ to the present day, the longer that is, the easier it is for us to lose the excitement and the joy of our salvation. So I would say you want that mixture of different ages. Mm. You want different stages of life. And I think that's the blessing of discipleship. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.